your experiences with the mental health system and with how difficult it was to be accurately diagnosed is a perfect example of why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Because if anyone listening is thinking, why does he have an ADHD specialist on a podcast for depression and anxiety? Well, it's because they are incredibly similar. In fact, as, as a hospital psychologist, the most common differential diagnosis question that I get is ADHD versus depression or anxiety. So welcome to the Psychology of Depression and Anxiety podcast. We have a guest again today. Her name is Sasha Harper. Sasha is an ADHD coach. I've known her for a while. She has a lot of really valuable insights to offer us, and I'm really excited to talk to her. So Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As always, I'm so excited to talk to you about this stuff. So can you just tell us a little bit about kind of your background, who you are, how you got into what you do and how you help people with ADHD? Yeah, sure. I mean, my background's kind of like a bit of a contrast to where I am now in some level. So my um, first career, if you can put it that way, was like a high school science teacher. My, you know, uh, the majority of my academic qualifications are actually in physics. My master's in particle physics. And just to keep it, you know, a little bit short and punchy, Essentially, I was, when I was teaching, I was continuously being burned out. I just couldn't keep going. So it was the first time that I had a really major um, burnout was 2017. I say first time, I think maybe the one that I couldn't ignore and just push through any longer was 2017 when I was still teaching. Um, and that's when I first actually reached out for mental health support. And they put me through mental health triage and I feel I feel like the diagnosis is something really wishy-washy but the phrase that comes to mind was high functioning anxiety which I mean the more and more I've got into the ADHD world mental health world and these spaces high functioning is just not a great uh, phrase but that's that's what was introduced to me at the time um, and it was actually at that mental health triage where somebody said, do you think you might have ADHD? So it was the first time it was put on my radar properly. Um, and then through that process, I did eventually get um, an ADHD diagnosis. It was actually from seeking therapy that wasn't provided by the medical system that I was put into. I went privately to a therapist. Um, and this is said with a lot of love, that my therapist I still see now, um, basically said, you're so disconnected from your body go get an ADHD diagnosis, go get medicated and let, let's see what we can do. Um, as I said, it was said in a very loving and supportive way. I did get the ADHD diagnosis. I didn't start medication initially. Um, and just the way that it went through, I feel like this was in now 2020 and the online world. Um, I started an ADHD meme page. And so was that was ADHD dopamine and um, was in the ADHD community. Uh, from that and started to learn and grow in that space. Um, I was current, I'd left my job teaching from the burnout and I was currently working for the Institute of Physics as an educational coach and trainer. And what was really serendipitous is I was actually leaning a lot more into the um, psychology of behavior because I was training um, schools to look at the impact of unconscious bias and stereotypes and how that was affecting people's mental health. So all of these things were like kind of merging together. So as I said, even though my qualifications were say like physics and teaching, I was already in the coaching space. I was already looking at the impact of psychology and behavior, learning more about ADHD. 
and then spring forward a little, um, I decided to, you know, become a, an ADHD coach full time. So mm -hmm. that takes us to about now. Perfect. And your your experiences with the mental health system and with how difficult it was to be accurately diagnosed is a perfect example of why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Because if anyone listening is thinking, why does he have an ADHD specialist on a podcast for depression and anxiety? Well, it's because they are incredibly similar. In fact, as, as a hospital psychologist, the most common differential diagnosis question that I get is ADHD versus depression or anxiety. Because most of my referrals come from physicians who, who don't have the tools to kind of look beneath the surface. You know, they get five, 10 minutes with a person and quick questionnaire here and there. And the symptoms that they uncover from doing those kind of brief analyses really don't necessarily tell, um, you know, is this person, does this person have a mood disorder, an anxiety disorder, or an executive functioning disorder? Mm -hmm. Because there are so many symptoms that are shared between those diagnoses. The most obvious one is difficulties with focus, concentration, and memory. If that core symptom in and of itself can be an indicator of depression, anxiety, ADHD, um, honestly, close to half the DSM, really, because almost any mental health condition affects your executive functioning. Then you've got things like restlessness, uh, fidgeting, difficulties with social interactions. You can, you can have such a, a complicated cluster of symptoms that can completely overlap. So they are very difficult to tell apart in many cases. And because they have many symptoms in common, they also can benefit from a lot of the same interventions. Um, so kind of looping back around to executive functioning. I know that's something that you help people with a lot. And that's also something that people who have mood disorders and anxiety disorders tend to struggle with immensely in most cases. For our listeners, just to make sure we all kind of have the same background and are on the same page, how would you define executive functioning or executive dysfunction, whichever one you want to kind of go with, and then we'll talk from there? Yeah, well, um, you've you've touched on the main areas, and it is that like focus, that that working memory, and essentially like the decision making, and it's so interesting how anxiety and depression kind of like sit on the sides of those. So when we're looking through that ADHD lens, as you said, you could list off a load of symptoms that are so similar um, because, you know, people are struggling to take action on something that they want to do or something that they need to do. They are um, struggling to um, process information in real time. They've walked into a room for the eighth time that day and don't know what they're doing. They've forgotten to phone their friend back. They've left something on the to-do list, which is then, um, you know, affecting somebody else. And they're, they're then needing to react to that in, in a very stressful real-time response. So without getting into the nitty gritty of like, what does executive functioning mean? It's kind of what does the impact have on somebody who is finding there's a level of dysfunction there? Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And and you said something there that was one of the main things I want to talk to you about. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump on that since it came up. Because as I was I was looking over your Instagram page, um, and there was there was a post that I remember seeing. Uh, I don't remember the exact wording you used, but I remember that the the heart of the matter was that so much of our 
procrastination or or our inability to get started on something that we do really value, that we want to do, that is really important to us, can actually be traced back to unmet needs. Mm. And and I think I like I think I knew that on some level, but I had never thought of it in that phrasing before. And so as soon as I saw that, I'm like, that that was literally my top bullet point for us to talk about today. So would you be willing to share a little bit more about like how unmet needs create procrastination, maybe what some of the more common things that we fail to give ourselves are that hold us back from getting the stuff done that we need to do. And we'll just kind of go from there. Absolutely. And, you know, we could probably do a whole podcast series on this particular topic because there is so much depth to it. And what I found fascinating, you know, with my own personal journey and has been reflected from my clients time and time again is the role of procrastination in a protective layer in but with different root causes so let's talk about um the one which is maybe a bit more exciting actually procrastination protecting something and protecting us from something that we actually want to do so it's like oh okay you know i i want to start a business or I want to continue with this hobby or I'd like to start sharing the work I'm doing with my hobby online and you know we get the the initial dopamine hit when we get started and then getting into this like kind of stuck point where there's uncomfortable feelings around moving towards that thing that that's good for us and what um, I found with my clients is when we do, and, and this is the element of my coaching, which isn't traditional in the ADHD coaching space, is that trauma-informed um, coaching approach. And actually, the, the approach that I use is, is a psychotherapeutic approach. I'm not a, a psychotherapist, um, which I integrate into my coaching. And when we use that um, and we kind of like look at what's going on for somebody there, there's actually a fear around maybe being seen or being rejected or fear of not being good enough. So actually what can be attributed to in the ADHD world is, oh, it's just your executive dysfunction. It's just because you have ADHD. Actually, when we dig a little deeper, there's something more going on. And we kind of, the ADHD space focuses so much on the brain, quite rightly, because that's where a lot of our issues um present however when we go into the body and really look at what's happening we can see that these feelings of discomfort they're very old and then we can start to meet these feelings in a different way and start to reframe these feelings and um that's what i help people do is move towards things that they want um safely and in a way that their nervous system just doesn't shut down because actually when we look at procrastination from the evolutionary um the whole point of it is it's a shutdown response out of protection it's you know might have been you might have heard the language around freeze response or anyone who's been nerding out and deep diving into the dorsal vagal response um and essentially that it's a really clever adaptive response to keep us still to keep us safe and wait for the threat to pass and when we can start to understand that and understand our past and where these feelings, these unresolved, these unmet needs of being able to like self-regulate or even have, you know, appropriate safe spaces to be emotionally validated and co-regulation um, and have co-regulation. Um, it, it shows like that's just where you need to do a bit of the work. So, you know, essentially that's where procrastination can be a really great protective thing. And secondly, as well, and I, this is 
this is where I get really flippant about it. Society is so backward that a lot of our procrastination as well is our body saying, no, I disagree. This does not align with my values. I see no value in this, but there's an external pressure to get that done. And, you know, I work with uh, professionals and entrepreneurs and, you know, this is something that I see with people in the professional space. They, they, they go through this real growth um, space. They get to know the nervous system. They get to understand the cues in their body. Is this something that, you know, is a little bit scary, but I can cope with it and move towards it and deal with all of that? Or is this actually something that my body's saying no? And it, it can be a lot of the time that it's their external environment that is causing um, this procrastination because the body is quite rightly saying this is my you know intuition antenna and it, it's a no from me so learning those two pieces of procrastination is really important and you can't do that from the cognitive space you've got to bring on the body you've got to bring in that somatic awareness because they feel different and there's different thought patterns that are going on and you know it, it's a space to explore and then you do actually have what I would class as the classic ADHD executive function procrastination, which is, there's not, it's not really unsafe. There's nothing, there's nothing great about this. There's nothing rubbish about this, but I'm going to pick scrolling on the dopamine slot machine instead of taking action to do something which is probably going to benefit me in the short and long term. Oh, there are so many important points in what you just said. And like you just described so many therapy sessions I have with people all the time where it's like, okay, you know, I, I didn't apply for those jobs. I, I didn't study for that test. I didn't organize my living space. And, and what I so often hear from people as their explanation for why they didn't do the thing is like, I must just not care. I must not be motivated. This must not matter to me. And you, you did such a good job identifying how there's actually basically, broadly speaking, two reasons why we might not get something done. One is, yeah, may maybe this isn't that important to us. Maybe this is something that other people are just telling us we're supposed to care about. But in fact, on a deep intrinsic level, we're like, you know what, that's just not that important to me. But the other reason that it can happen, which you just articulated, is sometimes we care too much. Sometimes the stakes, the pressure, the, the what we stand to lose if we don't do it right or or don't do it quickly enough or don't do it perfectly is so overwhelming to us mm -hmm. that it spikes our anxiety and we do enter more of like you said like a flight or a freeze response and and it's not that we don't care it's that we care so much that it shuts us down um i i explain it a lot as uh, something called the yerkes dodson law which you may be familiar with which it's an industrial organizational psychology construct um, actually a funny story about the Yerkes Dodson law. When I was in grad school, I noticed this relationship. Um, it just in my own like schoolwork, for example, my performance on tests, things like that. I had not formally been introduced to the Yerkes Dodson law. So I thought that I've just figured this out and I'm like, I am a genius. And I start teaching this in my therapy groups, literally the same thing, but I called it Scott's stress graph. And I did that for about a year. And I had a, I had a, another psychology grad student in one of my groups, very, um, very kind of passive, quiet girl. She just ever so politely raises her hand and says, um, 
this sounds very similar to the Yerkes Dodson law. Went home and looked it up, and like it was literally the exact same thing. Only they figured it out about a hundred years ago. So <laughs> I still feel that I deserve some credit for independently identifying the relationship. I simply was not the first to do so. But well, basically, peer reviewed right. research clearly. <laughs> Apparently, I have kind of a thing where I figure something out and I'm like, I must be the first person to ever figure this out. And then it turns out like, nope, this has been around for thousands of years. Um, but essentially, so the Yerkes-Dodson law is a, is a visual articulation of the relationship between stress and productivity. And, and they use stress very broadly in this relationship. Stress could essentially just be thought of to mean like, how much do you care about this thing? How important is this thing to you? Um, so stress is your horizontal axis, productivity is your vertical axis, right? And a lot of us think or assume that that relationship is simply linear. Like the more you care about something, the higher it's going to be on your priority list, the sooner in your day you will do it, the better a job you will do at it. And that anytime your performance is not where you want it to be, whether you're not starting the thing at all, or when you do it, you're really frazzled and it's not going well it's easy to assume like, I must not care enough about that thing. And when that's our assumption, our response to try to improve our performance is to up the pressure, right? We're trying to move ourselves along that line that we think exists between our performance and our stress level. So we remind ourselves of all the good things that'll happen if we get this thing done and all the bad things that will happen if we don't get this thing done and how other people are counting on us and my therapist will be disappointed in me if I have to tell him, nope, didn't do it. But the actual relationship is a bell curve. And I think this is true for most humans, but it's definitely true for pretty much everybody with any kind of anxiety disorder. Your default position on this graph is to care too much about things. That That is your brain's natural appraisal of situations is this is super important. I have to do this really well, and it's going to be really bad if I don't. And so when we are struggling to initiate and we increase the pressure to try to kind of light a fire under ourselves, so to speak, and get us going, it moves us further and further down this procrastination slope of the Yerkes-Dodson law. And, and we, we end up in this tailspin. And then other people join in too, because other people see the same thing. Oh, you said, you know, you said you were going to apply for three jobs today and you didn't. So I'm going to remind you and make sure you remember how important that is. And again, it's just squeezing us further and further into that I can't do it territory and just shutting us down completely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think what's really important, again, to use another psychological model. Um, I hadn't heard of that law, but I am aware of the relationship. So I'm going to call it Scott's stress graph, to be fair. I feel like it, it. Uh, it. Uh, runs off the tongue better. That's the phrase. Um, <laughs> and essentially, you know, as I said, to use another um, psychological model of transactional analysis, that's what I also then show with my clients is, okay, so are we in a critical parent ego state or are we in a nurturing parent ego state? Because exactly once we've hit that point where I'm like, where you can um, um, identify like I am stressed, like this feels like too much. The default for so many of us is to internalize that critical parent um, ego state narrative, which is that voice when you know we um feel like we should have done something so like i always um associate it with the word should like if you're shoulding yourself then you're highly likely 
to be in your critical parent ego state. And I know we have been raised on different sides of the Atlantic. Um, however, the Western culture, I feel, is, has been very, very similar about what motivation is um, and how we motivate. And it's generally shame-based, shame-based motivation. And what's even more interesting is then when we go back to our model of the nervous system, well, shame lives in that dorsal freeze response. And, and I appreciate freeze, it gets a little bit more complicated for those who, who don't know about it. There is usually an anxiety component and an immobilization component, and you're kind of like stuck between the two. It's like, I wanna take action, but I can't. And that's where it's very anxious. So you've got a mixture of this fight or flight, like you're ruminating this energy that you wanna take action with is actually just powering this critical parent ego state of you should be doing it. And, and going through all the situations of like, oh, I've got to tell my therapist, I've got to tell my partner that I haven't done it for another time today. And just going into we, we essentially shaming ourselves and that shame puts us further into that immobilization. Mm -hmm. And it's just realizing that if we can educate ourselves and if we can really understand our nervous system, we can give ourselves some grace. And the reason I love the transactional analysis model so much as well is because we can shift from a critical parent ego state into a more nurturing one. And going back to why I mentioned society and we'd been raised in it is because the critical parent ego state has got a really great function. It's, it's internalized rules of society. So we don't have to process these billion bits of data per second. We internalize the rules of the community so we can just crack on and have a lovely day. But when those rules from society are shame-based and we take those with us into adolescence and adulthood and we really like strengthen those um, neuro pathways of, oh, I'm gonna motivate myself by a shame, getting into that constant exhausting cycle of I'm shaming myself into immobilization. And then I'm, I'm, it's kind of like trying to dig yourself out of a hole by digging deeper. Mm. And, you know, essentially, as I said, like learning about your nervous system, about transactional analysis can be a really, really empowering um, experience for people with anxiety disorders, depression, ADHD, um, yeah, anyone with that, I'm struggling to take lead of my own self. Yes. Oh, I love that. There is a model of, of uh, motivation, basically, that I teach in group programming that's also a transactional model. I use slightly less professional sounding terms than you, but it's basically the same idea. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a disclaimer. I, I know I just said about five minutes ago that I have a tendency to think that I've invented things that I haven't. I have not been called out on this one yet, but it's highly possible that I'm going to get a message from a listener saying, don't you know that's the Stevenson-Davidson model of motivation? <laughs> so I am fully prepared to learn that I have not actually invented this. But the way I teach a very similar transactional model is that your motivation basically boils down to a math equation. It's a comparison of your perception, your prediction of the reward you experience or will experience when you do this thing compared to your perception of the effort it will require to complete this task. And if your perception is that 
reward will eclipse effort. In other words, I'll get more out of this than I have to put in. You will naturally want to do that thing over and over and over again. Even if that thing is, it may be a very difficult thing, but if you get consistent high level reward from it, you won't really have to work that hard to get yourself to want to do it in most cases. Whereas if the effort, if your perception of effort is greater than the reward you think you will feel upon doing it, even if it's a very simple task that is not that hard to do or will not take you that long, if you feel like essentially it's a bad deal, like it's not going to be worth it to do it, it's going to be the only way you're going to be able to do it then is to exert willpower. And that's not a long-term solution because nobody has infinite willpower. So it's like, I think of me, for example, right? I'm a psychologist. So I do, you know, four hours of group therapy, a couple hours of individual therapy and two to three hours of psych testing a day. And those are objectively pretty difficult things to do, but I've been doing them for a long time. So the effort is not that high for me at this point, because I'm, I would like to think that I'm pretty good at them. The reward is very high because I love what I do and I can see that it helps people and I can see that it benefits people. And so it, it almost always feels worth it to me. So I can do that, you know, nine hours a day, five days a week, no problem. But if I'm asked to do some very simple task that is out of my comfort zone and I'm not used to doing, like if my wife's like, hey, can you take the dog to the groomers today? I don't have time. I'm like, oh, no, I can't do that. <laughs> and it's objectively so much easier than things I do regularly, but it feels like it's going to be harder because I'm not used to doing it. And because I haven't done it very often, I don't know if it's going to be very rewarding to me. So my brain doesn't anticipate that that's going to like make me feel proud or accomplished or happy. So it feels, you know, from a transactional perspective, it's like, it feels like being asked to pay $10 for something that's only worth $5, you know? Yeah. Um, and you mentioned shame. Shame is so important here because shame affects both variables in this equation. If you feel shame about how well you've done something or how long it took you to do something, going back to procrastination, shame drains the reward you feel when you do the thing. So you can go, let's say, Let's say that you have had a pile of dishes in the sink for three days, right? And for three days, you've been thinking to yourself, I got to do the dishes. I got to do the dishes. I got to do the dishes. And on day three, for whatever reason, you're able to go do those dishes. Clean sink, dishes put away, everything's done. And your first thought when you get that finished is, I am such a lazy piece of crap because it took me three days to do those dishes. You had an opportunity there reward and your shame just cut it off instantly and what that does is next time it's time to do the dishes you think about how you felt last time you did the dishes which was i felt like a lazy piece of crap and now you don't want to do the dishes again and it just keeps you in this vicious cycle over and over and over again completely and i think you've just highlighted something that is so important that people forget it's like what's the function of the brain the brain is to interpret the brain is to evaluate the brain. And these are all the things, by the way, that are happening in your prefrontal cortex in the executive function area. But essentially, how do we experience life? It's not through the brain. It's through the body. And what's interesting is we see the brain as at the top. It's like the hierarchy. You know, it, it, it's logical. It, it's, it's literally the top of the, of the body. However, if we imagine the role 
of the brain is to serve the body and we like put it lower. We can see how we can start to distance ourselves from the exact narratives which you've been speaking about and how we can interrupt them. Because the brain's job is just, I'm going off all data. And when do we go off all data? Well, we go off all data when we're in our fight, fright, fight, flight, freeze, fawn responses. Mm-hmm. Because we are not actually in the present moment and evaluating cortically, cognitively, um, in that moment of like, okay, so what's happening right now? What is true right now? Instead, we're drawing on really old data. And that's why we're stuck in these these loops. Um, and as you said, like you know, the shame is just draining anything out. Like at the end of the day, our reward and motivation, it's all about the dopamine. And we have such dopamine available uh, choices that the, the, the system's completely out of whack. I believe they did um, an experiment with rats, didn't they? Where they took out the dopaminergic parts of the brain mm-hmm. and they the, the rats wouldn't move one inch to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. So they would literally die. So if your shame mechanism is overriding that dopaminergic response, you will literally, you know, I'm not saying uh, procrastinate yourself to death. But there are, it just shows how important having the right data versus the reward. And that's where the short-term versus long-term gratification gets really, really murky. Because um, as you said, if that this that should be a celebratory thing. Oh my gosh, I've done the I've done the dishes. It's, it may have taken me three days, but ha, huh, I'm so proud. It only took five minutes. I'm gonna take that with me and I'm gonna remember that for next time. No, 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 no. As you said, that shame mechanism is overriding it and you know that's the piece of data coming forward and you know to tie all that up essentially we've got to see the brain as just a bit of a just a bit of a a a robot that essentially Mm -hmm. now it can get quite metaphysical when we're thinking about okay so who's overriding the brain because are we not the brain? Like, where does the I live? Uh, where does the self live? And, you know, that, that's a conversation in front of the day. But being able to distance yourself from the initial thought patterns and starting to notice, okay, you know, when I'm having shame-based thoughts or urgency-based thoughts, that's telling me this about my past, about my nervous system. And, you know, these are the steps and the actions that I can take to, to move through it and, and build better habits longer term. Right. It's so it's such an interesting paradigm with the brain, because on one hand, our brains are shockingly complex, like as complicated as our galaxy complex, like like structurally and physiologically. But at the same time, they follow some very simple, predictable rules. And we are often prone to misunderstanding those rules and kind of going off the the robot metaphor, which is an apt one in many ways, kind of like misprogramming ourselves. And shame is a perfect example of that because, you know, in, in the example of, you know, I was procrastinating this thing for three days, I finally did it. And then I give myself a hard time about it taking three days. What we're trying to do in that moment, what we think we're doing is we think that we're shaming the procrastination. We're giving our, we're, we're, we're trying to demotivate the fact that it took us three days to do it so that next time we'll think, oh, I felt terrible that it took me three days to do it. Now I will do it in two days. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we think we're doing. Our brains are more simple than that though, because our brains will associate 
that feeling of shame and that criticism that we've internalized with the action that directly preceded it. And the action that directly preceded it wasn't the procrastination, it was the task completion. So functionally, our neurons, our neural connections associate task completion with shame. And then going back to that Yerkes-Dodson law, it makes the stakes feel even higher because if I don't do this quickly enough and well enough, someone is going to insult me. That person is me, but that doesn't matter to the brain. And I actually, that isn't something I learned in school. I learned that, interestingly enough, at the dog park because, you know, dogs are high-level mammals, right? Our frontal lobes are different than dogs, but the back two-thirds of our brain are pretty similar to other mammals like dogs and chimps and dolphins. And so... um, a little bit after my wife and I got married, we got it. We got a dog together. The dog's name was Emma, and Emma was not. She was not a typical dog. She didn't. I mean, I think she did love us, but she didn't really. She she wasn't the kind of dog who was like, oh no, I got to be by my owners at all times. She was. She would just leave. Like she could not be off leash. She would just. She would just leave. Um, and so we took her to this fenced-in dog park. You know, we thought, okay, there's a fence, so. She was also a very high energy dog. So it was this tough balance to manage of like, she needs to go run. She needs to go play, but we can never let her be on her own because she will run away. So we take her to this uh, off leash dog park and I'm like, it's fenced in. So there's, you know, she can't leave, let her off the leash. Predictably, she runs around, you know, plays, explores, et cetera, which is what we wanted her to do. But, you know, at some point we had to leave. And so we're calling her, Emma, Emma, come, come, doesn't care doesn't care at all we followed her around the park and she was also fast so there's if she doesn't come to me i i cannot catch her she was a incredibly fast dog following her for like an hour we got to go home i mean it was like a tuesday night we had work we had school emma emma she's not coming she's not coming finally after i'm sure it was an actual hour i don't think i'm exaggerating she finally i don't even think she came she just happened to walk by me <laughs> i don't think it was because of anything i did so I grabbed her collar and I was kind of, kind of grabbed it firmly. And I, I kind of had it like a hoarse voice. I'm like, you've got to come when we call you. And I, I was being kind of rough with her. My wife's like, you know, you just punished her for coming to you, right? I was like, oh, I did, didn't I? She's not, she doesn't realize that I'm talking about the stuff before. Her brain is going to associate this stimuli with what just happened. I walked up to him. He yelled at me. Do I want, next time he's calling my name, am I more or less motivated to walk to my owner who's calling my name again? Well, I just punished her for doing it. So now she already didn't have a high reward drive for coming when she's called, and I have just decreased it. I have made it even less rewarding, essentially by sh I shamed my dog, basically, and sabotaged her reward system for coming when she's called. I should have, even though I was frustrated with her, and even though I wished it had not taken an hour, I should have given her a treat when she came over to me to reinforce the behavior and make her want to do it again and again and again. So in that moment, I realized like part of her being this way is my fault because I am not responding appropriate. I'm not making these things rewarding. I'm punishing her for doing the things I want to do. And we do that to ourselves too. And we don't realize that on an emotional learning level, we're not really very different than dogs. We form those same associations. So good, Scott. And I can't not bring that back to the education system and mm -hmm. how we actually um, respond to children. And it's it's completely backward. And that's where these, as I said, when we said, um, 
we've raised, been raised in similar societies, when a, a child misbehaves or does something, a behavior that the, the teacher or society doesn't want replicated, it's not that often, and it certainly wasn't the case when I was teaching for the best part of 10 years, where you know there would be um, a curious and compassionate conversation around what was happening. You know, there's a behavior system protocol that you have to follow. And it's usually based in some form, like whether it's like passive aggressive shame based or, you know, there's direct um, based, uh, shame based, there's isolation. So it's like detentions, missing out on break, missing out on um, sporting events. And, and the people doing it truly believe that that's how people learn. But as you said, this faulty programming it's getting passed down generation after generation because that perception of, well, this is how we learn through motivation or we'll, we'll spoil them if we do it that way. And it's actually completely the other way you can have really healthy boundaries and discipline through compassion and curiosity. And, you know, going back to the nervous system that lives in a different place in the nervous system. You know, isolation is is literally where shame lives. That's why COVID was so hard for so many of us because our bodies were flung into isolation, which is very dangerous um, for for humans uh, historically, and you know, related to the, to that freeze response. And you know, so yeah, essentially, uh, it's a, a well 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 done, Mrs. Scott, on identifying that what was actually going on there. Because, yeah, like so many of us do believe that, you know, I don't like part of what's happened here. I'm going to let you know that. And it actually comes from a caring place. And I think that's what's confusing as well. Going back to exactly what you said at the beginning. Oh, I must not care enough to do the dishes. No, no, no you care too much. Mm -hmm. exactly. It's like, oh, you must not care about your dog if you're going to be nice to them when you know give them a treat when they return it's like no no no. it's because I, I it's because I care um and I don't I think I lost the analogy that and that one but you get you get oh, what yeah. I'm trying to say Absolutely. you know it's not about how much we care it's about how much we process and sometimes I can find it really useful to think that caring and experience happens in the body and the brain is just that like evaluative space so we can keep them as separately and we can hold that duality of I feel this way and I can process this way and I can feel this way and I can notice the processing doesn't match and then take different action. So, yeah, whilst we want to build this like harmonious relationship between brain and body, it can be really useful in the initial stages to see them quite separately. Mm -hmm. And I know you said you said before that, you know, you weren't going to get into the super technical side of things, but I'm a nerd. So I am going to do that. Everything we're talking about here from from a neurobiology level, basically, your brain can be divided into three functional sections, right? Like, like, basically, if you kind of sliced your brain into thirds, most of the executive functioning stuff that we're talking about, so making yourself do something that's stressful, or regulating your emotions or thinking about you know, how is this decision that I make today going to affect me in a week or a month or a year, critical thinking. So all the, all the really complicated human society stuff that we can do, that's the front third, right? 
The middle third is more about emotions and long-term memories, like episodic memories. That's also the part of your brain that communicates with the nervous system as far as fight, flight, freeze, and fawn responses. Your amygdala is what regulates those responses. We call them trauma responses, you know, but I think that's a little bit of a misnomer because everyone has that system and it can be activated also just by an accumulation of stress. So it doesn't have to be a trauma. It can also just be like, I am completely overwhelmed. My to-do list has 30 items on it. I feel like I'm not doing a good enough job at anything. We wouldn't necessarily think of that as a, as a trauma, but it is going to activate that so-called trauma response, right? And then the back 30 of your brain is the brainstem. That's just really basic physiological functioning. So something that you've probably heard this too, there's, there's this common saying that we only use 10% of our brains. And it's, it's a half-truth. Um, what it seems to imply when you hear that is like, oh, my, like most of my brain is this worthless lump of nothingness that doesn't do anything. That is absolutely not true. Your brain is shockingly efficient. The amount it can do compared to its size is there's, there's nothing in the world that can compare to it, honestly. Um, nor is there like a hidden part of your brain that most humans don't use that you can learn to start using or take a pill to start using and, and become psychic or unlock superpowers or anything. What's actually meant by that saying is you only use about 10% at once. Yeah. And your brain is sort of on a power grid like structure and it's constantly redirecting like blood flow, oxygen, caloric energy to different parts of itself based on what you are doing or what you have going on. And so when we are under a lot of emotional distress, the midbrain, the limbic system, increases its demands for resources because it's processing all these emotions and regulating your, your trauma response. And it draws resources away from the frontal lobes, which is where all of the skills that you need to get yourself to do the things that you don't on an intrinsic emotional level want to do, that's where they live. That that's where that's where behavioral inhibition lives. That's where that's the part of your brain that can say, what I really want to do right now is just scroll some social media or binge watch some TV, but I know that I should take a shower first. Even though that's it, it's what lets you basically override your emotional hierarchy and do something that you regard as more important, even if it is less pleasurable. So the more distress you're under, the more your ability to do that goes down. And then like we were talking about before, so many of us, when we see like, I'm not doing the things I need to do, we shame ourselves. Shame is an emotion. So it increases our emotional distress. It increases limbic system activation. It decreases frontal lobe activation and it digs that hole further and further and further. And like you said earlier, what we really need in those moments isn't more pressure, isn't more stress, isn't more shame. It's regulation. We need calming techniques. We need grounding tools. We need pleasure building. We need relaxation. And doing those things actually will increase our productivity because it regulates the limbic system and it regulates the nervous system and it puts us back in that frontal lobe driven state of functioning, which is what we need to be in to do the hard things we're all trying to do every day. Oh, you put that so beautifully. And that's what I refer to in my abbreviation terms as the ADHD sucker punch, because having a, um, a, a, a lower functioning prefrontal cortex, you know, it's, it's the idea that the, um, the older parts of the brain, when they get triggered, they actually send a little signal and say like, hey, evaluate this for me. Are we safe? 
And if we've got a low, if we're, if we're in this chronic state of stress, and if we are chronically feeding our limbic system, um, you know, and our blood flow has been removed or, you know, reduced from the prefrontal cortex, we can't then say, hey, everyone stand down. And that's where, as you said, we need these self-regulation tools. And for many of us, even though, you know, we've got so many people getting diagnosed with ADHD much later in life, many of them, and I see this with my clients and I know this was true for me as well, we have to start with co-regulation because somewhere along the line, whatever was happening for us and how we were processing our big emotions, you know, we know there's a gen genetic sensitivity with ADHD as well. So yeah, okay, we might be responding um, much bigger to same stimuli, but to, to the individual, it's still a big emotion and it can still over time get really, really overwhelming. So whilst schools and parents and caregivers have zero intention of being invalidating which is no you're fine don't worry about it and minimizing these things there's a disconnect between the experience that's happening inside of the person um and you know how they actually process and evaluate so that's very it can be very very stressful so they can actually start having a, a stress response to their own emotions so when we talk about emotional regulation versus emotional dysregulation I think it can be really empowering to realize there's just a gap between, um, okay, which part of the brain stimulated when you're experiencing big emotions and how can we get back to that co-regulation and that compassion? Because, you know, that, as you said, the prefrontal cortex, that's strongly associated with the ventral vagal complex, which is 200 million years old versus the older parts of the brain, which are 400 and 500 million years old, which is the more, you know, quote unquote primitive, um, chimp reptilian brains or whatever yeah. um so yeah and and as we said like in our day-to-day -day family units and in our school spaces there's a belief that punishment or being you know stern or in, indirectly shaming somebody for their own emotional reaction mm -hmm. instead of actually sitting in that co-regulation um and and teaching somebody how to do it because i also look at the irony of the people raising raising the children and again this is without judgment it's just my like little giggle that i have is the adults tend to shame the children who have mm -hmm. even more of an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex because you know what's an adolescent or you know a child by definition it's somebody that hasn't yet matured into adulthood and what what's a what's an adult human someone with a you know um a, a develop a fully developed brain prefrontal cortex being a big part of that so we've got adults who expect children at a lower developmental stage to respond more uh responsibly re responsibly or appropriately than the current adult is doing in that moment right and i'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned because i often leave this part out I don't know why, but I'm so glad you mentioned that, like, in these examples, you know, we're talking about parents and children, for example, or teachers and children. In most cases, you know, this is not maliciousness. This is not this. These are not adults trying to sabotage the lives or the functioning of their children. These are simply people who who are misinformed about the true nature of these relationships and doing what they think is right to help people. But ultimately, 
um, probably more deeply ingraining some already unhelpful habits that that person is going to hopefully eventually get some help from somebody like you or me to unlearn and, and get back to a more regulated and functional state. Um, I, I'm for whatever, I think I get frustrated and I sometimes just throw people under the bus and I'm like, Oh, all these people in your life, what are they doing to you? And it's like, you got to remember most people don't have this knowledge and this background and they, they're just doing what they were taught and they think they're doing right by people. And they don't realize that some of these, you know, so-called common sense principles, uh, you know, are actually harmful to people, it, not just kids, adults too. Um, gosh, there's so much more we could talk about, but, you know, to keep this in scope, I think we should probably work on wrapping up for today. One thing I want to make sure we do not skip over though, is for, for listeners who want to hear more from you or, or maybe even want to see if they can use some of your services, can you tell people where they can find you and where they can get more from you? Yes, of course. Um, the best place to find me is on Instagram at Sasha Harper but it is spelled a little funky so it's S-A-S-A Harper um, and essentially I um, support people to do a lot of what we've spoke about today is getting to know their nervous system getting to understand the states of the nervous system um, understand their anxiety their procrastination what's happening with their executive function at a nervous system level as I said we do explore deeper um, into their past experiences or their response to their own emotions, the beliefs they hold about themselves and, and particular circumstances and working with that actual ADHD. Like, you know, we do have to stop seeing ourselves as specimens sometimes and lab rats and just look at ourselves as that like whole holistic piece. Um, and so, yeah, I, I support people to do that usually people who um are entrepreneurs but it's it's it's, it's not a hard um it, it's it that's like yeah not a a fixed thing that someone needs to be running their own business however with ADHDs like these being able to take action and move towards things that are going to support them in their business it becomes a, a lot more paramount when you're an entrepreneur and it can be a lot more um obvious when there's like uh, an executive dysfunction issue or that procrastination or anxiety and really supporting them get to the root of their issues and move forward to build the life that they want to mm -hmm. essentially well i highly recommend following sasha on instagram i do and in addition to a, a lot of fantastic uh, strategies and information you also will get some truly hilarious memes at times which really helps break up the seriousness and that's i i really appreciate your sense of humor thank you so much for joining me today um and i look forward to talking to you at some point again in the future oh thank you so much scott yeah take care <laughs>